Pushkin. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. This is Solvable. I'm Jacob Weisberg. In my lifetime, too, and I'm, I'm 61, uh, I have never seen this level of engagement and attention to the social uh, pathologies that face us and also the pathogens that face us beyond the social pathologies. According to the UN, disruptions resulting from the global pandemic could push an estimated 71 million people back into extreme poverty. That represents the first rise in extreme poverty since 1998. With every ounce of our energy, uh, we need to direct ourselves to making this a temporary setback. Today, we're bringing you the first episode in our Setback series, a collection of conversations about the pandemic's impact on education, hunger, and of course, global health. And it's fitting that we're starting today with one of my personal heroes, Dr. Paul Farmer. As much as anyone I can think of, Farmer has changed the way the world looks at the unequal distribution of healthcare. He has spent the last 40 years committed to improving health equity across the world, most notably establishing long-running medical support services for communities in Haiti and Rwanda. He's the author of a fascinating new book that I'd call a medical and moral thriller. It's titled Fevers, Feuds, and Diamonds, about the 2014 Ebola outbreak in West Africa. It's intensely relevant to understanding the global impact of COVID-19. Everyone knows that COVID vaccines are being distributed unequally. What's less appreciated is that disruptions from the pandemic are increasing inequality in the distribution of other health resources. This could ultimately lead to hundreds of thousands of additional deaths for children under five and cause tens of thousands of additional maternal deaths. And I retain plenty of optimism. We have tools at our disposal that would have been unimaginable just a couple of decades ago. But the will to deploy them and to deploy them justly 
uh, still has to be summoned. In April 2020, the World Health Organization, along with the European Commission and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, launched a plan to get COVID vaccines to low-income countries. It's referred to as COVAX. There are many reasons to do this. And the best ones, in my view, are that science and the fruits of science ought to be evenly distributed, uh, like human capacity is. For all the devastation he's seen, Farmer remains hopeful that the setbacks from the pandemic don't have to mean a more unequal distribution of health care going forward. I'm Paul Farmer. The inadequate health resources of poor countries and of poor or underserved people and affluent ones are a problem we can solve. Paul Farmer is a professor at Harvard Medical School, chief of global health equity at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, and the co-founder of the organization Partners in Health. I began by asking him to describe the global healthcare situation in his own words. Well, I mean, right now we could uh, focus almost entirely on the setbacks. You know, one of the biggest problems we've faced all over the world is that with a shutdown, obviously people aren't able to uh, readily access their their care. Um, what if they have cancer? What if they have diabetes? What if they have severe hypertension? So, you know, those are uh, ranking problems, I think, to anybody who's involved in global health. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. A lot of the efforts that we have engaged in to address social determinants of uh, ill health are also being set back. Economic, educational programs, cultural endeavors, employment opportunities. Uh, there's been a major contraction in anti-poverty efforts overall. So it's going to be a, a troubling uh, reflection on what's happened this past year. And uh, alas, I'm worried it's going to be projected forward into a future as well. Paul, there are two different ways to think about the future in this setback. One is that it's just a temporary setback where we lose a year and quickly get back to where we were. The other is that it's a 20-year setback. How do you see it? Well, I mean, I see it as, uh, you know, a struggle between those two options with, uh, with every ounce of our energy. Uh, we need to direct ourselves to making this a temporary setback. That's going to require, you know, rapid uh, engagement in responding to some of these social problems and medical problems and health problems. But every, every week, month, season that goes by where we can't point to a resumption of, of some of these economic and social activities is going to mean more uh, likelihood that the setback will, will, will endure. And so, I mean, I retain plenty of optimism. We have tools at our disposal that would have been unimaginable just a, a couple of decades ago. Um, but the will to deploy them and to deploy them justly uh, still has to be summoned. There's certainly more consciousness about healthcare disparities in this country on the basis of race and socioeconomic status than I remember in the conversation for a long time. Do you see the pandemic as any kind of awakening either in the United States or globally about the disparities between the global north and the global south, wealthier countries and poorer countries? Uh, for sure. I mean, in my lifetime, too, and I'm, I'm 61, uh, I have never seen this level of engagement and attention to the social uh, pathologies that face us and also the pathogens that face us beyond the social pathologies. 
So, you know, they're, they're from the very beginning, even before the murder of George Floyd, there was reason to think that, you know, such a catastrophic series of events could awaken a lot of people about the need for a, a, a better safety net. For example, health insurance, unemployment insurance, protection for vulnerable workers, prisoners, people who've been, you know, shoved around onto reservations and meat packing plants. I think that sense of possibility is still very much alive. This heightened awareness of our vulnerability, of our collective vulnerability, but also our heightened awareness of the inequalities of vulnerability. So, you know, I, I, I would proceed optimistically, even if I weren't convinced, because that may be just psychologically necessary. But I think this is very real and we have to act uh, promptly while people are still alive to some of these challenges before they fade away. Your new book, Fevers, Feuds, and Diamonds, is about the Ebola epidemic that broke out in West Africa in 2014. And one of my takeaways reading it was that a lot of the harms we think of as coming from the disease are really the harms coming from the underlying healthcare system in place or not in place. What I mean, is is that right that we're attributing things to the novelty of a virus that in many cases just project reflections of what was there in terms of our capacity to deal with a healthcare crisis of any kind? You know, every time there is a health crisis and a pandemic is a is the classic example. Once you're sick, who lives and who dies? And on both scores, I think we're seeing uh, not just in the United States, but across the world, a reflection not just of the novelty of the pathogen, but of the, what's the opposite of novelty, the long-standing nature of our social pathologies. Social disparities and our social pathologies make things worse. The good news is that means we, we can alter that risk because although we don't alter the shape of viruses yet, we can alter the shape of our social conditions. I think often about an article you wrote some years ago that I think might have had that title, Who Lives and Who Dies. Uh, and you talked about, if I remember it right, what you called stupid death. And you told the story of a traffic accident you had, I think maybe when you were still a medical student or, or many years ago, when you were hit by a car and it was serious, but because you got high quality medical care, you certainly lived and probably it didn't, it didn't do you the kind of permanent harm it would have somewhere else in the world? And then you talked about another accident to someone you knew, I think, in Haiti. You know, the term that I, that I got that expression, stupid deaths from, from Haiti. I heard it in my first years there. And uh, I went there in 1983 for the first time. And I'm still working in the same parts of Haiti. And, uh, you know, in those early years, uh, not only did I hear about stupid deaths, I saw some of them. And uh, those happened to be the years in which I was hit by a car in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and knew right there lying in the street that, uh, you know, I would be uh, okay. You know, and I was comparing that to the kind of circumstance that is faced by all too many to this day. You know, it's, it's as if, you know, someone would say to you after you've been hit by a car, well, you should have looked both ways before you cross the street, right? And it's not very helpful to look back and explain away these disparities of risk and outcome without making an intervention to lessen that risk. Here we're facing a respiratory pathogen uh, and it's a different set of 
needs, but I think the needs are nonetheless uh, material uh, as well as social meaning. You know, do we have the staff, the stuff, the space and the systems to respond to our health crisis? So right now we're talking about COVID, but we could be tra- talking about surgical trauma or AIDS or Ebola or any one of a series of maternal mortality in Sierra Leone. Each of those problems requires and always has a set of material responses, which, you know, I've just summarized as staff stuff, space systems and support. And I got all that, you know, as a medical student transferred from one hospital to another and then to rehab and then to to having surgical care that I needed, et cetera. I, and I knew I would. Those disparities, staff stuff systems, it's a bit of a tongue twister. I think I got it right are not exactly reflected with COVID-19 the way you might expect. There's an article in The New Yorker that uh, Siddhartha Mukherjee wrote that looks into that a little bit. Um, Nigeria, for example, one of the countries you talk about in your book in, in relation to Ebola, doesn't seem to be getting hit that hard. United States, obviously wealthiest country, you know, most expensive systems has gotten hit very hard. But focusing particularly on the question of why some poorer countries, some countries in the developing world are not having the experience of the pandemic that's as severe. Why do you think that is? Well, you know, I'm going to try and resist the conventional explanations. Mm-hmm. Um, I will mention them. They include the age structure of the population, there's less obesity, there's less asthma, diabetes, hypertension. So there, there's, there's perhaps less of it in a largely younger population. But instead of focusing on the susceptibility or the nature of the virus alone, it's also a risk to focus on the nature of the individual and the physiology of an individual alone. And uh, instead, we have to also bring in other questions like, uh, it's not unthinkable, of course, that some of these places have had very robust public health responses to COVID uh, and that they deserve some of the credits, the, the credit, the humans deserve some of the credits for having been the architects of this response. Let me just take Rwanda, uh, a country where I lived on and off for a decade. The quality of their response to COVID, both in terms of prevention and in care, uh, has been pretty, pretty damn good. So all this to say, Jacob, I think that when we go back or when we start to explore this even now, we're going to be called to come up with lists of factors that could explain these disparities and also sort them out and put them in order. Um, I imagine that folks in Singapore and China and Taiwan are justifiably proud of uh, their ability to bring this, their fraction of the pandemic under control. We could be justifiably justifiably proud, for example, in the United States, of our ability to marshal scientific research to come up with vaccines in such short order. But we're, we're probably not called to be proud of our public health delivery system, which is very patchwork. And it's also underfunded massively. If you were to compare Rwanda to the United States, not just in terms of their programmatic response to the pandemic, but the fraction of their public treasury that they put into public health and healthcare, it's much, much larger than the United States, the public treasury. So they're also prioritizing public health um, very high up on their agenda. It's not some black box mystery where we have to say, well, what is it about Rwandans that makes them so invulnerable to disease? It's not the case at all. It's rather, 
What is it about their response that has made them able to do a better job than we have here in the United States? The reason to ask that is not to win an argument, but rather to learn from our colleagues uh, and the experience in Rwanda. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase and a member FDIC 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Parents, ready to discover a new educational and interactive podcast for kids? Join Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids where episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We learned how to recycle at the beach. That was great fun. Callie, what do you say? It was. And that time when we did the science experiments and Billy made raisins dance. That is so cool, Billy. He did. <laughs> Not to mention when a certain Elliot took up swimming classes with Lisa. That was me! <laughs> Bet you can't catch me. I'm going to catch you. All this fun and more in our Stories for Kids. Lingo Kids Stories for Kids is now available on StoryButton, the kid-friendly device for screenless podcast listening. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Paul, you've talked about a kind of nihilistic thinking which can take effect in relation to public health problems that seem insoluble. Recently, I've seen you use this term containment nihilism to talk about what we can't do in relation to the pandemic. Can you explain a little more what you mean about that? You know, one of the things that I've seen again and again in my clinical practice over the years is clinical nihilism. You know, the argument that, oh, we can't do anything for these people. They're too poor. They're, it's not cost effective, not feasible, not sustainable, not even prudent. Now, of course, those are also predominantly black and brown people. Right. So that's clinical nihilism. And it's a very hard sell in the United States. You know, I mean, would you would you openly argue for a different standard of care for the Bronx than Manhattan. It would be a very difficult sell politically. It's the functional equivalent of Jim Crow, but it's just not something that 
you can sell. But we do see a different kind of nihilism in the United States, and that's containment nihilism. And it was so striking, you know, every time we made a suggestion, like we should do more contact tracing, we'd find uh, takers, even uh, governors of entire states like Massachusetts, right? Um, but it's not anything that ever became a national program yet. Um, that's containment nihilism, right? And then after the really dramatic uh, moment of having the president of the republic gets sick, you remember the next day after his hospitalization, his chief of staff said, we are not going to contain this pandemic. We're going to only do this through vaccination. So again, that's about as eloquent a statement of containment nihilism as you can get. Um, we're not going to do It's a great with. phrase for surrender. Yeah, it's a great, containment it, it's a surrender, right? Unfortunately, even with great vaccines, we have to do contact tracing. We have to observe social distancing, we have to mask, all of the conventional public health demands really are still out there and will be around for a while. But containment nihilism is not what we saw in the Ebola epidemic in West Africa. There was clinical nihilism. And I think here in the States, we're seeing a lot more containment nihilism. Paul, how does the rollout of vaccination globally look to you in terms of equity? I mean, there are many developing countries where essentially no one has been vaccinated. As you said, the vaccination seems to be part of the a success story in the United States, both in terms of the development and the rollout. I don't know. Overall, it's not going badly. The numbers are accelerating. You know, things seem pretty good. But you, we just see this vast gap. You know, it seems that our whole country is going to be vaccinated before a lot of poor countries are vaccinated at all. Yeah, I mean, this is the, the the great worry. I will say that there's a fairly uh, massive coalition of people coming together to try and uh, diminish vaccine inequality or vaccine apartheid or whatever we call it. I mean, supply is the problem. Uh, there will be other problems with distribution, but you can't have the distribution challenges if you don't have the supply. The mechanisms that have been pulled together to address this, and you've probably already heard of or spoken about, COVAX, but the targets are still not high enough. They're not as high as the Rwandans want them to be. It's something like countries with barely more than 10% of the world's population have already cornered the market, have already bought, actually, about half of all the doses. Um, and, you know, there are going to be lots of complaints about that, of course, and legitimate complaints. So we're really going to have to, again, redouble our efforts to address this. The, the timeline uh, of implementation, if you want to call it that, like the, the time between the development of an effective technology that could be a medicine or a vaccine and its widespread distribution is usually measured in decades. But as people now know in the United States as well, uh, if there's ongoing community transmission of, of the coronavirus, the novel coronavirus, uh, then there's going to be ongoing mutation and the emergence of new and more troubling variants uh, which is already occurring, is sure to increase. So that's one of the, you know, one of the reasons that I'm not, I'm not suggesting we use fear to stimulate more investment in vaccine equity. I'm just saying people should know that there is a, there are many reasons to do this. And the best ones in my view are that science and the fruits of science ought to be evenly distributed uh, like human capacity is. We got the COVID-19 vaccine really fast. The system worked in that case. But for other diseases that primarily affect 
the global south, we don't have vaccines, or at the very least, vaccine development can take a very long time. So how can we have a system that does a better job of eradicating diseases that primarily affect the developing world and not the rich countries? Sometimes we talk about the discovery science, right? Uh, The basic science discoveries, the development of the new tools. A lot of that is done by pharma and biotech, right? And then finally, the delivery. So getting from the first D of discovery to the third D of delivery requires the assistance, I'm sure, of a lot of these companies that, you know, are know how to make tools, whether those be uh, medical treatments or vaccines. So we just need to bring everybody on board. I don't want to sound like I'm singing Kumbaya, but again, there's uh, even a cold-headed logic would say, well, if there's already a COVID vaccine in rural Rwanda, that means that you could move quickly. It's possible to see vaccine in the field, in the arms of people who in the past have been shut out of medical modernity, but they don't need to be. And that's one reason that my solvable problem is to argue that these are not insurmountable problems, none of them. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, you've changed the terms of the debate from how do you do it instead of whether it can be done. You've, you've made yeah, it a good. difficult I problem. That, yeah. I hope that, I hope, I mean, I would love to, to claim that. I'll put that on my tombstone, you know, uh, because, you know, how are you going to put a man on the moon uh, with that kind of logic? You know, can we do this? It had to be, how do we do this? I assume, I mean, I, I wasn't there, but. <laughs> That's one you didn't you know, quite take on, yeah. In medicine and public health, uh, it's hard to point to any example of sustained attention to a health problem that resulted in failure uh, because, you know, implementation was impossible. It's it wants you to say, how do we do this rather than should we do this? I mean, part of me wanted to say you're halfway there. Bill Gates and the Gates Foundation, who played a very big role in the COVAX program, um, he have thought a lot about this problem. He takes the position very explicitly, all lives have equal value. I mean, he says something, you know, very similar to the kinds of things you say. But he also takes the view around vaccines that you need the profit motive and the private sector to drive the innovation and development around vaccines and that they need patent protections. And and often you um, hear criticism of that, that the patent protections in particular keep vaccine prices high and keep vaccines out of of reach for the poorest countries. Do you think his approach is right or the best available solution or neither? Well, you know, I think, uh, and and, uh, first of all, I don't doubt that um, that, his work and the work I'm talking about the work of the foundation is premised on this notion that all lives have equal value. Don't doubt it. Uh, and I have some experience discussing these matters with him. Um, I also don't doubt that a great Titan of industry knows things that I would never know about things like patents. But I also, I, I further believe that people like me have something to add, even if we don't know a lot about trade agreements when I say people like me, I mean clinicians, nurses, doctors, community health workers. You know, we have responsibilities as well to communities that we're serving. And if those communities are not well served by current trade arrangements, including patent law, then we should suspend or waive them in the middle of crises like this. This is a global health emergency, the likes of which we've not seen in our lifetime. 
I would imagine that many people in industry, and including in the pharma industry, could agree there are moments when you would waive uh, intellectual property rights in order to increase uh, production. And you know, right now we're in a in a situation, as you know, where production is the chain is the chief barrier. It's supply is the chief barrier. And so, if a country like Rwanda can convince those who do hold patent rights over new technologies like mRNA vaccines that they too could participate in the production of vaccines and in their distribution elsewhere in the world, I think that would be a good thing for the species, meaning our species. Paul, I wanted to step back and ask you uh, a more personal question. It's a question I like to ask all our guests on Solvable, which is essentially, how did this become your life's work? How did you end up devoting yourself to global health equity? I can answer in one word, which is uncharacteristic of me, Haiti, meaning uh, the brevity part is uncharacteristic. Um, (laughs) I went uh, almost by accident to Haiti um, between college and medical school and learned things there in, in, in one year that I think it would have taken me many years to absorb uh, in a classroom, for example. And that's where I learned both the devastating toll of not having a safety net, but also the almost shameful facility with which one could be put in place. The other regular question we like to ask on Solvable, Paul, is what can listeners do? And in this case, it's to make up for the setbacks brought by the pandemic. I might divide it into two separate answers. One is, you know, talking about those increased and highlighted disparities in the United States, um, but then in terms of the global gap and the global shortfalls. You know, I I, I would love to see people the age of my students uh, grasp onto this as their you know, a, a, a hankering that will endure, that they will keep pushing forward, an equity agenda. And I don't mind calling it a social justice agenda. What's wrong with social justice? That's almost asking people to make a stance part of their response, just a personal stance. I am against these kinds of health disparities. I am for uh, their uh, decrease. And then there are specific tasks. I mean, Uh, Partners in Health, of course, uh, which is really the implementation arm of anything I might say in a lot of the places I work, requires pragmatic solidarity. In order to do this work, uh, we need support. And it's not just in far off places. We need support in Massachusetts, in Navajo Nation, in Newark, in Immokalee. You know, there's a long list of really pragmatic uh, matters that uh, we need to address. I'll just give one example. If in the state of Massachusetts, which is a very a very blessed state in terms of overall wealth, in terms of a safety net, the great majority of the people uh, who we encounter in our work doing contact tracing in Massachusetts, those who need social support, 80% of them cite food insecurity, 80%. And, you know, uh, we live in a country where there's enough to feed everybody. That that's another very pragmatic example of the kind of assistance people need. And, and it also includes all the other things that you think about, like not being evicted or having unemployment insurance or, uh, or help uh, for the disabled who need to get their vaccines or, uh, or in-home care. On the global uh, level, it's a very similar kind of set of concerns, at least for the patients I know best and the populations I know best, they are concerned with the same set of problems getting their kids back in school, resuming their activities, 
and opening up the clinical services and educational services that they want, again, requires a lot of pragmatic solidarity. And I only say that because, you know, what is it that Partners in Health is doing beyond that? Not much. It's really pragmatic solidarity. Sometimes we're saying, okay, we'll help you build a hospital or we'll help you start a medical school, but it's still the the, the pragmatic part of it is still there. And I, I just hope more and more people uh, who are listening get involved in global health equity. That's kind of the term we use rather than public health. It's a role for everybody. Paul, it's an inspiration and always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us on Solvable. It's great to see you, Jacob. Thank you. Paul Farmer is a professor at Harvard Medical School. He's chief of global health equity at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston and the co-founder of the organization Partners in Health. His new book is called Fevers, Feuds, and Diamonds, Ebola and the Ravages of History. To learn more about international health resources, disease prevention, and poverty eradication, please check out the links in our episode notes. Solvable senior producer is Jocelyn Frank. Research and booking by Lisa Dunn. Catherine Girardot is our managing producer, and our executive producer is Mia Lobel. Special thanks to Heather Fain, Khadija Holland, Maya Koenig, Emily Rostek, Eric Sandler, Carly Migliori, John Schnars, Christina Sullivan, and Maggie Taylor. Solvable is a production of Pushkin Industries. If you like the show, please remember to share, rate, and review it. It helps us get the word out. You can find Pushkin Podcasts wherever you listen, including on the iHeartRadio app and Apple Podcasts. I'm Jacob Weisberg. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block, and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentions, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job. And we have to find out, who did they kill? It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling, because I was like, "This this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? 
I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. Plus.